This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. Greenhouse gases continue to increase. Climate disasters struck repeatedly this year with eye-popping heat records across the northern hemisphere, not to mention a few floods and, well, droughts, you know the picture. Scientists ask, why don't we study the harsher reality? What happens if planet Earth smashes past the 2 degrees C we hope for, going over 3 degrees by the end of this century? That possibility is growing, but officials and institutions are in denial or slow to act. We have a landmark new paper titled Climate Endgame, Exploring Catastrophic Climate Change Scenarios. The authors include former advisor to Angela Merkel, Joachim Schellenhuber, and Radio Ecoshock guest Johan Rockstrom from Sweden, plus the UK's Tim Lenton. These are serious senior scientists with a warning. We gravely underestimated climate risks. Now we have to consider global warming beyond 3 degrees C. From the UK, we reached the lead author, Dr. Luke Kemp, with his PhD in International Relations from Australian National University. Luke is a research associate at the Cambridge Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. From Cambridge, Luke Kemp, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you for hosting me, Alex. Why don't we begin this very big paper here? In the abstract, you ask, could anthropogenic climate change result in worldwide societal collapse or even eventual human extinction? That seems like an impossible question, but is it really possible? So we do believe it is possible. The key thing we do in this paper is not to try to prove that climate change is going to result in global societal collapse or extinction, but rather to say that because of multiple reasons, these risks are plausible enough that they require further consideration and study. And off the basis of that, we can then start to pick out how could it happen and how likely is it. Each report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change gets worse with more frightening predictions. Why does your group of experts say they may not have gone far enough? A few different reasons. One is that when you look at the simple coverage of temperature rise, it appears that the wider scientific literature, which the IPCC synthesizes and assesses, is focusing more on low-end warming and less on high-end warming. This is based upon two different text mining reports of IPCC assessments that I was involved with. These were published in Earth Future and Environmental Research Letters and led by Florian Yen at the University of Gießen. What this basically means is we use a computer program to pick out the mentions of different temperature rises, 2 degrees, 3 degrees, 4 degrees, etc., and see how frequently these were mentioned and in what context in the reports. And essentially we found that mentions of 3 degrees and above were far lower than the likely probability and they were far lower than 1.5 and 2 degrees. So in short, we appear to be under-researching extreme warming or 3 degrees and above relative to its probability and relative to lower-end warming. It's worth noting here that there's other lines of evidence which support this. So popular science books by Mark Linus, so I find a warning, or David Wallace-Wells, The Unhabitable Earth, they've said exactly the same thing, that when they've tried to look into the literature, as you get into higher temperature range scenarios, there's less and less research on what could potentially happen. And similarly, we also did literature sampling, so looking into general databases and found a similar pattern. 
So that's one way in which we are underestimating and under-exploring climate risk. Another is simply that our risk assessments are too simplistic. The way that risk assessments tend to work in most models and approaches to trying to think about climate damages is they simply tally up individual hazards. So you think of sea level rise or extreme weather events such as floods. You look at each of them in isolation and you make some predictions about the potential damages and costs. Now, first of all, these are usually low end because they tend to be based upon outdated estimates of damages. But additionally, this is not how risk works in the real world. I mean, imagine trying to model the impact of COVID without considering things like healthcare system collapse and the fact that this led to knock-on effects such as lockdowns and hence restrictions in travel, supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera. You'd be missing the vast majority of the impacts and the vast majority of the actual damages that occur. And we're doing exactly the same thing with climate change by not considering risk cascades, systemic risk, and the ability for individual impacts to reach the scale into systems shutting down, we are basically providing a less realistic but also a far lower estimate of potential climate damages. So those are the two key ways in which we're currently under-exploring and underestimating climate damages. I wonder why that is, Luke. I mean, are scientists worried that they, they won't get funding or that they won't uh, appear serious if they consider these more extreme possibilities, or is it that humans really can't face it? I mean, why? I think there are four key reasons. The first is the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which set in stone the goals of 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, limiting global temperature rise to those two levels. And that has naturally channeled scientific attention towards those levels of warming. In addition, we've had the 1.5 degree special report published in 2018, which of course was very useful, but it led to even further focus upon 1.5 degrees in particular. The second reason is that these are simply harder to do. Doing complex risk assessments, while much more useful and much more realistic, are just simply harder to do. And similarly, if you're looking at higher temperature ranges, these are far more displaced from our current climatic conditions. And hence, once again, it's more difficult to model, and you often have to look to geology and millions of years ago to actually get close parallels of what it could look like. There's also the fact that climate scholars face a disincentive to talk about these extreme scenarios. We, if anything, have an incentive to err on the side of least drama. It's fairly frequent due to the history with climate deniers and merchants of doubt that if you talk about extreme risk, you're automatically going to be branded as an alarmist. And, you know, it wasn't as bad as I expected, but that's happened to an extent with this paper as well, where we aren't saying anything new per se. We're simply synthesizing some evidence. There's a few bits of new analysis, but immediately some people said, you're exaggerating, etc. And there's just no evidence. And if you actually ask, in what area are we actually exaggerating, suddenly there's a, bl- there's a blank response. Um, but I think that shows the knee-jerk reaction that tends to happen when it comes to talking about catastrophic climate change. And last but not least, all this is compounded by the consensus procedures of the IPCC. In 2019, your co-author Tim Linton led a study into tipping cascades. Just to remind us, what is that? And has this possibility been digested into institutional science predictions? It's first of all worthwhile clarifying what a tipping point is. And a tipping point is an element of a system where once you reach a critical threshold, 
you set off self-propelling feedback mechanisms which basically shift the, the system from one state to another. So think of going from the Arctic having ice to it being ice-free year-round. A tipping cascade is essentially a dynamic where tipping one element in a system makes it more likely that other elements are going to get tipped. So if, for instance, we have a tipping point in the Arctic or the Antarctic, that leads to further warming, which suddenly tips the Amazonian basin. And this is the real fear, is that eventually you have a tipping cascade which knocks off a large number of different tipping points. And each one adds a little bit more warming and makes another tipping point a little more likely, and you create a kind of domino effect. This is something which is plausible, possible, but once again, understudied as well. At one point that's worth noting here is that there was an article published by Tim and several of his colleagues, including and led by David Mackay at the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter, published this year in August with Science, which basically looked at the likelihood of different tipping points being triggered at different levels of temperature rise. And there's four or five which could be knocked off at 1.5 degrees Celsius. And an important point here is that essentially with every new estimate, it seems like the likelihood of tipping points being activated at lower temperatures increases. So the more we know, the more worrisome the picture appears. Yes, I did interview David McKay about that, or Mackay, and uh, I will put a link to that interview in my blog for people who want to follow up on that. Your new paper also worries about something called an irreversible transition to hothouse earth. So what is hothouse earth like in a nutshell, and, and why could we not stop it from happening if we knew it was coming? So the idea of hothouse earth actually dates to a paper published in 2018, which was called Trajectory of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. This was led by Will Steffen, who was a co-author on Climate Endgame, and it also involved several of the co-authors on Climate Endgame. And the idea is that you set off different feedbacks in the Earth system and different tipping points, and eventually that shifts you to being committed to a larger amount of warming. And, of course, warming in the long term, you know, the hundreds or thousands of years, sets off a large number of changes in every element of the Earth system. And eventually, the Earth looks very different to how it looks today. And I think once you start to broaden your time horizons, this is where things start to get more worrisome. Climate change has been implica implicated in the all five of the mass extinction events throughout the Cenozoic history of Earth. And these take time. It usually takes thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. But one of the key, what geologists call kill mechanisms when it comes to mass extinction events, is the release of hydrogen sulfide from anoxic, so oxygen-deprived oceans. And this is something that can very plausibly happen in the long-term future. And eventually what that kind of causes is large-scale death, obviously, within the oceans, but also on land as well. as hydrogen sulfide, which is lethal gas, is released from the oceans. And that's something which obviously is just not plausible to ever happening right now in the current Earth system. But if you shift towards a hothouse Earth state in the very long term, it suddenly becomes something which the Earth system may be committed to. So it's about considering the tipping points that may lock us into the irreversible change, but also how does the Earth system look like in its new and equilibrium state in the long term. One thing that's worth mentioning here is that we do know that some of these changes are likely to be, if not irreversible, very difficult to reverse. 
as one example. There was a paper published, I believe, last year on the dynamics of the Antarctic ice sheets led by Ricardo Winkleman at the Hoffman Institute. And they point out that once you get above two degrees, it appears that the ice loss you have with the Antarctic ice sheet becomes not quite irreversible, but incredibly difficult to reverse. Essentially, if you bring temperatures back down to the modern world's temperature, you don't achieve the same ice sheet configuration. Instead, you have to actually go one or two degrees below our current temperatures in order to achieve that ice level configuration. And there may be many other elements of the Earth system that follow that kind of trend, where returning back to current greenhouse gas levels or current temperatures isn't enough to bring the Earth system back into its current state. Does this new paper open a discussion on the possibility of mass human casualties due to climate-driven extremes? Yes, I mean, this is one of the key elements we call for in our research agenda. So it's worthwhile bearing in mind and repeating that the paper doesn't obviously prove that climate change is going to be a catastrophic or extinction-level risk. It simply poses that question, provides plausible reasons for concern, and then puts forward the rationale for exploring these scenarios as well as an approach for doing so. And the approach is both, I think we already touched upon one element here, thinking about extreme Earth system states, including hothouse Earth, and the second is modeling mass mortality and morbidity. And that means trying to push our models to think about what's the very worst case here. And once again, to try to look at these things like risk cascades, which is something we don't tend to do in most existing models. The next two steps we suggest are looking at societal fragility. So thinking about how are human systems likely to respond when it comes to climate change. So thinking more deeply about things like conflict, for instance, but also risk cascades when it comes to a disease, for instance. You know, we do know that climate change is going to increase not just vector-borne diseases like malaria, but it's also going to increase the likelihood of new zoonotic infections like COVID-19. And eventually putting all these together into what we call integrated climate catastrophe assessments. And I think it's only once you get to that stage that we can really get a, a plausible, accurate and reliable estimate of just how many human lives could be lost in the future due to climate change. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith from Cambridge. Our guest is Dr. Luke Kemp. We're talking about ultimate risks that nobody else wants to talk about, apparently. Now, Luke, in another paper earlier, you studied possible risks with solar radiation management, or SRM. Would you tell us about that? Of course. So solar radiation management is one form of what's commonly called geoengineering, large-scale interventions into the Earth system to offset the impacts of climate change, Solar radiation management attempts to do this by changing the albedo or the reflexivity of the Earth. The most common proposed intervention here is what's called stratospheric aerosol injection. The injection of particles that reflect sunlight, aerosols, into the atmosphere. So think of it almost as treating the atmosphere like a global thermostat. We have too many warming agents, so we start pumping up some cooling agents instead. And we do know that this seems to work. Why? Because we have historical precedents in the case of volcanoes, which pump up aerosols into the Earth system, and we know that this has historically led to as much as one degree drops in temperature. And what I attempted to do with a colleague, Aaron Tang, at the Australian National University who led the study, was to look at one of the different potential risks that would be associated with SAI. And this is important for one big reason. If we're going to use an emergency option, like stratospheric aerosol injection, we need to know what are the extreme risks it poses 
relative to climate change. In short, is the cure worse than the disease? Like with climate change, we quickly came to the conclusion that there's not enough evidence or studies. In fact, it's far less than what we have for climate change. We tried to look at a few different areas, so direct impacts, knock-on effects, service cascades, and also latent risk, so its ability to impede our recovery from other disasters, as well as the ability for it to trigger other catastrophes such as nuclear war. What we found was that for many of these areas, there's just too few studies that have any conclusive conclusions, but one interesting element is what's called termination shock. So stratospheric aerosol injection, the beauty of it is that the aerosols wash out of the atmosphere quite quickly, usually within one to two years. So it means that you're usually not going to be committed to the cooling you're doing unless, of course, there's an unforeseen tipping point. The downside is that it means the system, if it goes offline, potentially allows for warming to happen at an increasing rate because all you're doing is you're masking the greenhouse gases. You're actually changing the composition of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so what could, ha- could happen is if you stop using stratospheric aerosol injection and you've been using that to cover, say, four degrees of warming, that four degrees of warming obviously comes back. But rather than occurring over the space of centuries as greenhouse gases increase slowly over a long period of time, it suddenly happens over the space of a decade or two. So the rate of warming is greatly increased. And this termination shock could mean that a calamity such as nuclear war or really bad pandemic, something that's bad enough to knock offline the system for a prolonged period of time, could make recovery and could make the initial disaster far, far worse. So in short, what you're doing is you're shifting the risk distribution where the average outcome or the best case scenario under solar radiation management is better than climate change, but the worst case scenario could be much worse. In the new paper, the Climate Endgame paper, you say, quote, climate change could directly trigger other catastrophic risks such as international conflict or exacerbate infectious disease spread and spillover risk. All that sounds too complex and uncertain to study. It's riddled with uncertainties. Is it too hard to study? Is it impossible? No, I don't think so. I mean, when it comes to zoonotic infections, for instance, we already have pretty good understandings of how climate change is going to impact that. Conflict is more difficult, but we do know, for instance, that it appears to exacerbate pre-existing conflict. There's a bigger debate as to whether it triggers it. And there's additionally fairly good knowledge that things like governance factors are going to make the likelihood of conflict being worsened by climate change increased. So this is by no means an impossible area of study. And importantly, we're still better off having some estimates and some studies here, which have done well, than having none whatsoever. By asking, for example, large groups of experts to put forward estimates of how conflict could evolve in the future, it may not be perfect, but that's going to give you at least some good ideas of what are the pathways for climate change to true conflict. And in lieu of that, if we don't actually have good attempts to do science around this, then you're going to have it filled with either naive dismissal or speculative doom-mongering. And importantly, you know, we make these things better, we make science better in general by trying. And so if we give up on trying to do model catastrophe so early, we're never going to have a chance. And personally, I'm quite optimistic. If we can do things like machine learning or putting people on the moon, I'm pretty sure that we have the ability to overcome the uncertainty of thinking through future crises. 
Well, yes, now the world is so interconnected. I mean, even financial experts worry about a global crash as never seen before, or or maybe a nuclear war could still happen, as we're seeing with the threats in Ukraine. Can we handle those human crises even while this climate is delivering repeated extreme weather bombs and higher seas and drought and all that? That's a good question. When I think about societal collapse, I often think about it as stresses eventually overcoming the resilience of the system until the system reaches this kind of tipping point, this critical threshold, and flips into another state. So are we capable of having that happen because we're facing too many stresses from finance, potential nuclear war, climate? And yes, I think it's plausible. To me, this becomes an interesting question of why are all these occurring? And I'll quickly mention a different piece I've recently done which was called Agents of Doom, which was published in BBC Future last year and was part of a larger body of ongoing work. And I think the interesting thing here is that all these different crises that you've alluded to, they're not emerging out of the ever. They're not just kind of happening randomly. They all have very distinct roots, and I think most of these roots are very clearly political and economic. And when you look at nuclear weapons, it's 89% of the stockpile is held by two countries, Russia and the U.S., when you look at global emissions, you know, over 77 emissions historically and cumulatively have come from 10 countries, and the U.S. is worth a roughly quarter of them. And similar dynamics play out when you look at things like surveillance technology, lethal autonomous weapons, etc. So the kind of bright side to all of this is, yes, we are facing many different big and pending crises, but you can trace most of these back down to a small number of factors, and it's usually the fossil fuel industry, big tech, and military-industrial complexes. And if we can learn to tame and regulate those actors appropriately, then I think we go a long way to reducing all the different intertangled crises that we face. Your paper provides a chart defining terms like risk cascade, extinction risk, societal collapse. It sounds like we're just at the beginning of developing the language we need to describe these novel risks because we've never seen such a destabilized future. Indeed, and I think this is one of the, the biggest things we try to do is to provide a foundation not just for studying climate catastrophe, but also for exploring catastrophic risks more generally and broadly. When I first entered the field of existential risk back in 2018, I was fairly surprised by the lack of clear terminology we had for discussing these concepts. We kind of lacked a, a scientific language, I think, for talking about them. And a big thing this paper does is try to do exactly that. And one thing that worth note, that's worth noting here is what we try to do when speaking about climate change is to clarify that we're not talking about climate change as an individual hazard. Keep in mind when we talk about risk, it's composed of usually three or four different things. A vulnerability, hazard, and exposure. So if you're thinking about a tsunami, for instance, the hazard is the tsunami itself. Exposure, you're sitting on a coastline which is hit by the tsunami, and vulnerability, you're in a house which is on stilts, which can be resilient to the tsunami. And what's often added in, and at least in the most recent IPCC research report, is response, how you actually respond to the oncoming hazard. And the way that people often talk about climate risk and catastrophic or existential risk more broadly tends to be as individual hazards. You know, we talk about nukes, we talk about climate, etc. And what we say in the paper is that what's much more realistic, but also more complex, is thinking about what's the contribution of climate change or another hazard to the overall level of risk in a given scenario. Because, of course, if you have 
three degrees of warming in a future which is characterized by equality, high levels of international cooperation, and adaptive technologies, that's very different to three degrees occurring in a world which is driven by conflict, high levels of inequality and corruption, and very dangerous weaponry deployed across the world. So forget about the Cold War. Your group talks about warm wars. What do you mean by that? When we talk about warm wars, we essentially are proposing the question that will climate change result in conflict over both the dwindling carbon budget as well as dwindling resources, as well as countries responding with emergency options like solar radiation management. So in short, will both the impacts of climate change the scarcity of the remaining carbon space and the resort to emergency options will lead to some kind of international conflict. It's worthwhile pausing here and noting that right now there's limited to no evidence that climate change does cause international conflict, particularly between great powers. But, of course, we only have a small sample size. Climate change is only really occurring really for a small period of time. And we don't know how the relationship between climate and conflict will likely evolve at higher temperatures. So two degrees, three degrees, or God let alone think of five or six degrees. Our guest, Greenland expert Jason Box, talks about the problems getting funding for studies that explore extremes. Many institutions insist on a proof of concept before funding, a demand that leaves out discovery of some harsh possibilities. Is that a problem for exploring extreme catastrophic scenarios? Is it hard to find funding for climate endgame agendas? I think thus far it has been. There's more appetite when you're applying for research funding to go for something that's both plausible and less ambitious. And as soon as you start talking about these much bigger, more dramatic scenarios, you both potentially run the risk of having yourself called an alarmist, but it also is, once again, going to be more difficult to do. And these all propose issues with getting funding. So... Yes, I do think it's more difficult to get funding for looking at these extreme risks. I do hope that with the publication of this paper and with all the arguments we put forward, hopefully that changes going into the future. Why does your group call for, quote, an IPCC special report on catastrophic climate change? And do you see any signs that could happen? Well, first of all, because it's needed. As we note in the paper, there's a range of different reasons that we need to understand these worst-case scenarios. One of them is risk management. When you look at robust decision-making under uncertainty, most of the tools require knowledge of the worst cases. One of the most obvious ones here is the tool which is called the Minimax Principle, ranking policy options by the plausible worst cases. You can't do that if you haven't actually even considered the worst cases. Second is it can galvanize action. In 1983, the publication of the nuclear winter mechanism by Carl Sagan and colleagues led to efflorescence of both bottom-up disarmament actions as well as multilateral actions on disarmament. And additionally, this is required for us considering emergency options for things like solar radiation management. And it also changes the way that we do modeling analysis. You know, simply by including tipping points in an integrated assessment model, the most common model used for estimating climate damages, you increase the cost of carbon by eightfold. By considering extreme temperature rise, you potentially increase the cost by orders of magnitude. So this is all clearly needed, and that's a very strong reason for why the IPCC should be taking this on. But one of the reasons we've specifically asked for a special report from the IPCC is that 
Special reports have a track record of galvanizing and catalyzing research. So the announcement of the 1.5 degree special report by the IPCC back in 2015 led to a huge amount of research coming up, which was then obviously synthesized and assessed for the 2018 report. And we hope that with the announcement of a catastrophic climate change report, it would give a boot and a kind of rapid acceleration to the research being done in this area, and suddenly we go from being underexplored to hopefully sufficiently explored. Luke, tell us about the role of the Cambridge Centre for the Study of Existential Risk in all this. The Centre for Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge is dedicated to the study of risks that could lead to either global cytoquaps or human extinction. And we try to operate across a realm of different domains here, so including things like climate change, but also thinking about things like nuclear weapons and the vulnerabilities of global systems, of the infrastructure, trade, agriculture, etc. And we also have people working on natural risks, such as volcanoes, high-impact volcanoes. And our centre is about trying to develop a new science of thinking through these catastrophes, and not so we can just simply know about them. It's not about disaster voyeurism, but so we can design interventions to prevent them. This is all about understanding extreme risks so we can stop them from occurring. From Cambridge, we've been speaking with Dr. Luke Kemp. The PNAS paper Climate Endgame, Exploring Catastrophic Climate Change Scenarios, is open access. You can study it. And I want to thank you, Luke, for spending your valuable time with us here on Radio EcoShock. It was my pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. New science shows almost a foot of sea level rise is already guaranteed from Greenland ice melt alone, no matter what we do next. Ports and food-growing deltas around the world could be invaded by the sea, and that is a minimum. It could be much worse. The lead author is well-known glaciologist Jason Box. Jason is a hybrid. He earned his Ph.D. in Colorado and works abroad as professor in glaciology at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland. But Jason's real home may be Greenland. Now, after 12 years of research and two years of peer review, Jason leads a team publishing a landmark paper on expected sea level rise from Greenland melt. From Denmark, Jason Box, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Good to be here. Is your team's new estimate for committed sea level rise built on a climate model? We use what we can observe, which is how high does the snow line climb on the ice each summer? And that marks an important boundary between the area that's accumulating snow and the area that's losing. And so this gives us the budget locally, and that one foot of committed sea rise that is just up until the year 2019. It's a baseline, and as climate continues warming, which we expect, the committed sea rise from Greenland only increases. By end of century, we expect the figure to more than double. And why is it important to use geophysical measurements instead of models when it comes to estimating Greenland ice loss? Despite many clever people well, not enough, I would say, working on the ice flow modeling. There are numerous known 
mechanisms that can accelerate the ice response to warming that simply are not yet encoded. And that's because of lacking ways to express the physics in a mathematical model. So our contribution is complementary. It's radically different. And we provide a lower bound. We set what's the minimum sea rise contribution. And there, there can be more, but, but our approach is based on 20 years of observations plus a robust theory. And, and so we can further constrain the future sea rise from Greenland. And what does your team mean by zombie ice? That was a term uh, provided by a journalist. And when asked whether I thought the term zombie ice was adequate, I said, well, I prefer one foot in the grave. And what we're talking about is as the snow line climbs, the area of the ice that's accumulating versus the area that's losing, there's a a strip of, of ice down the profile that is essentially dead but it hasn't yet exited the system. It's, it's on its way, and, and melt rates have been increasing, and we, so we see this strip thinning, uh, but it, it, it's still there sitting, waiting to be exited from the system because the, the flow response of any ice mass, any glacier, will attempt to reach an equilibrium from this area that's accumulating snow and the area that's losing ice from melting. And so this, that's called the equilibrium line. And so any glacier, large and small, and we've proven this for the ice sheet of Greenland, that movement of snow line from year to year, it's, it points to an equilibrium condition that the last 20 years have been out of. And so there's a strip of ice. The ice is trying to respond to this new equilibrium. And so it set into motion this readjustment of the system to this new higher snow line, and that'll take time. And so the zombie ice name isn't that far off because there's this half-dead ice just waiting to exit the system. So the paper outlines three scenarios. The first is the headline, which people talk about, over 10 inches or 274 millimeters of sea level rise is definitely coming from the warming we've stimulated so far. How certain is that? It's a rock-bottom, committed sea level contribution from Greenland. And the fact is the observed shape of the ice suggests at least 25% more. And we, we had to go with a linear translation of the committed area loss to the volume loss um, to avoid any mathematical controversy. But the, the existing shape points to the theoretical value exactly. And, and therefore, we can argue that that 10-inch figure is, is actually 12 inches. And it's the way that, that ice behaves. Uh, it's an observed property. It's like, a you could say, a natural law of, of the shape that, that ice can assume uh, under any climate. But as the climate is shifting to warmer, snow line is moving higher, it, it adjusts the, the profile and the the ice will have too far extended area that is melting, and so it'll retract, and that's the area loss part, and converting that into volume, we did it linearly when we know that the exponent is just uh, 1.25, so it's another 20% volume. Uh, we did so to 
avoid, again, any mathematical interactions. You can't numerically prove the mass under anything but a linear assumption, which is very obviously a lower bound, uh, ultra-conservative rock bottom. And the only assumption here is, is, does climate continue warming? And under no foreseeable future should we expect the climate to, to stop warming. There are some hypothetical situations that make climate stop warming. That would be a nuclear winter kind of effect, either from massive volcanic eruptions, which would shroud the atmosphere and shade the surface, or uh, geoengineering, putting reflective aerosols temporarily into the stratosphere. That is another way of shading the surface, or uh, comet impact, or also a nuclear exchange. Like There would be, need to be a way that there, there would be a shroud of, of dust or particles that would simply shade the surface. And so there are, you know, conceivable ways, however, not at all attractive ways, right? So humanity's effort should rather be focused on reducing carbon emissions, carbon pollution, and thus start to slow down the committed heating of the climate system. Yeah, Greenland's just a little bit too large to throw tarps over it to protect the ice as they tried to do in parts of the Alps. Right, and and I have seen some astrophysicists talking about this solar radiation management question uh, via the best understood approach of uh, stratospheric aerosol injection of reflective aerosols. However, those reportings have not been accurate. The issue, uh, while I, I suspect that humanity may go for this option as a temporary way of, of slowing down heating of the surface. It is, it's very unattractive. It lacks a governance structure. It has uh, the likelihood of unintended consequences. And so as, a, as an alternative, lowering emissions is, is very attractive, which will only uh, slow down warming. It, when emissions reach net zero, that's when we should expect uh, warming to stop. And there are some commitments uh, from some countries about net zero, but globally, net zero, given current commitments, is beyond end of century. But that's the big question. It, it, so now that we understand that uh, we have a way of measuring the committed loss from any ice mass, then the question is, okay, uh, how much sea level rise can we afford and what are the mitigation strategies and and, and policies to limit uh, carbon emissions. So the second scenario in your paper involves a future that assumes Greenland continues to melt with conditions like 2012. What is special about that year? 2012 was the most recent super high melt year for Greenland. Actually, 2019 was another such year. And we used this high melt year, 2012, as an analog for an average somewhere, let's say, mid-century, could be end of century, depends on the carbon emissions. Under that steady climate of 2012, there was more than double the committed sea rise from Greenland. And on the other hand, what happens if the future looks more like the 2018 melt year? What does that look like? So 2018 was a cold year. This I like to call this the weather of climate you have extreme melt, you have extreme cold years. Well, the average is taken over like a 30-year period, and 2018 was the first 
year in about 30 years where the Greenland ice sheet was in a mass balance. There was as much snow as there was melt. There was very little melt in 2018. And what that year would do is if we had a scenario where climate stayed cool, very cool, 2018, then you would actually stabilize the ice sheet. But the average, if we take the last 30 years, we're something at our uh, value of a, a sea rise commitment of 3.3% area loss from Greenland, which translates to uh, 27 centimeters or about 10 inches of minimum sea rise contribution. Jason Box, you were known to be a bit on the edge in a Rolling Stone article Jeff Goodall called you an American ice maverick. But as you just described, the language in this paper emphasizes the conservative approach that you took. In fact, it sounds to me a little too conservative. What is the worst-case scenario? This approach only provides the lower limit. And so when we consider a variety of known factors that hasten ice loss, these include uh, ice softening from increased meltwater draining into the ice because the meltwater is several degrees warmer. It has an internal heating effect and softer ice deforms more readily. That's one factor. Another is the expansion of the bare ice area during summer as snow line climbs and that bare ice area uh, gets darker because of biological effects or the accumulation of other uh, light-absorbing impurities. Another factor that's not yet included in the models is the uh, ocean convection. Uh, so you, the numerous largest outlets from the Greenland ice sheet are marine-based, and as the meltwater is running through mainly at, at the bottom side of, of the ice, it's forcing a heat exchange at depths where the ocean tends to be, on average, uh, about four degrees warmer than at the surface. And so this drives melting at the grounding line where the ice loses uh, frictional resistance of flow. So it's a very sensitive area to undercut the ice from a forced convection from actually a warming ocean. So those deeper temperatures in over decades have been getting warmer. This is a destabilizing effect. Um, there are other factors, known factors, that ice sheet metals don't have that when you integrate these ideas, unfortunately, the, the math isn't there to give a precise number. However, surveys of experts um, have resolved an upper red curve in the IPCC reports. And, and this was put in after some uproar from ice sheet scientists uh, because if you go with the existing conventional models, the sea rise is kind of ridiculously low or sluggishly low because the, uh, the way that the ice sheet models are run. Therefore, experts conclude that the sea rise has to be higher, and a survey of them and giving a statistical uh, weighting of, of the experts' uh, spread of best estimates, that curve is, again, more than a factor of two higher for Greenland, and you have to have the same kind of considerations for the much larger Antarctic ice sheet and when you integrate all of that, there's a hypothetical expert elucidated upper bound that's something like three times higher. And so it has to be put probabilistically. So there's a one in 20 chance by end of century of two meters of sea level rise. And when you think about 
if I cross a road and I've got a one in 20 chance of getting run over, uh, do I cross this road? And that's a, an effective risk management approach that coastal planners need to think about, about this uh, low probability, high impact scenario where there are additional ways that the ice being lost. Uh, Antarctica is an excellent example of there are some unknown uh, factors, uh, likely uh, known unknown factors, because the if you take the past decades of scientific progress, there have been this steady increase in the number of factors that can move the ice more quickly. And, and so these upper-end estimates uh, try to factor in these kind of sounds which are somehow uh, following the trajectory of uh, the, the past underestimates of, of sea level rise. So we have an upper envelope, and it's pretty scary where we, we have to deal with multiple meters of sea level rise. You're tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is scientist Jason Box from the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland. We're talking about Greenland ice melt leading to rising sea levels around the world. Jason, you were early to call out the problem of pollution, changing the shade of Greenland from pristine white to dirty gray, and that led to the publicly funded Dark Snow Project. Is that change of albedo significant for this new assessment of Greenland ice loss? What we learned by taking through the Dark Snow Project, we were chasing the black carbon from wildfire, that the soot that accumulates on the ice. And while that is a factor, it remains poorly quantified. However, we were able to confirm this known process. So we studied the we cord, we took snow profiles and, and measured black carbon vertically in these snow profiles. And at the 2000 12 melt layer, this was the big melt year, we confirmed that, yes, the surface gets darker because of the increase in wildfire in a warm year. This was the record warmest summer in, the, in North America, 2012. It may have been exceeded since then. However, we, Colorado State had its record high fires, and that's what launched the idea. So our work confirmed that, yes, in an extreme melt year like 2012, the surface does get darker. However, now that it's been 20 years, uh, we've uh, resolved that biological factors uh, in the bare ice area are a larger darkening factor, and they depend on the amount of time that the surface is uh, snow-free. And we're talking about the lower one-third of elevation of, kind of any, any glacier, and there are biological algal blooms occurring, and these... Uh, Micro-single-celled organisms require a duration of time, and so the, the more the, the bare ice is there, the darker the surface can get. Uh, I think most people have seen photos of the lower parts of glaciers, and they may be surprised just how dark they can get. They can reflect as little as 15% of the sunlight, so 85% of the sun is going into that. So that, that has now been resolved to be an amplifying factor in melt that is not included in the ice sheet models used in the intergovernmental assessment reports. And it's a good example of of how we need to encode more processes that are happening that we can observe. These are the known factors, and it's why the the ice sheet models produce uh, the melt slower than than, uh, we observe. 
In your career, you also championed another new way of looking at changes in Greenland's ice. I mean, most of us picture huge icebergs calving off into the sea as the major source uh, that would lead to sea level rise. Could you talk to us instead about the role of meltwater? Yeah, on Greenland and and any, let's say, smaller uh, northern hemisphere ice mass, they're not calving into the ocean. There's been this competition for biggest loser. Which is it? Is it the tidewater glaciers where icebergs are calving, or is it the larger area that is uh, terminating on land, the, the glacier? And there's been this competition. Some assessments have said, oh, it's about 50-50. And uh, what we have shown is that in a warming climate, the tendency for Greenland is that the areas that are terminating on land, not into fjords, are the largest source of sea level rise. And and as the ice melt is already forcing the tidewater glaciers to retreat onto land, as the ice melt forces the glacier to retreat onto land, then this effect of, of melting into the fjord-terminating glaciers uh, will become less important. So it's, it's likely that, uh, you know, that surface melting is the dominant factor, and it, and it actually it was during the survey period we took from 2000 to 2019, uh, surface melt was about a factor of three more responsible for the loss of ice from Greenland. Your PhD concerned ice lost through evaporation. Is melting Greenland becoming a source of more water vapor, thus adding to global warming, and perhaps to more extreme rainfall somewhere else? It's a very interesting question uh, because as climate warms, there is more evaporation lower on the ice But there's some good news here that in a warming climate, there's more frost that's forming in the higher parts of Greenland. And so that represents a minority of what we call damping feedbacks. These are, as climate warms, uh, the surface gets more reflective at the higher elevations. And what it does is it, it slows it down a bit. It doesn't reverse it. It just dampens the effect. And other climate dampers include uh, so more evaporation from land produces more clouds, and that reflects more sunlight back to space instead of heating the surface. However, uh, that effect is smaller than the overall heating effect on carbon pollution. Yeah, that's, that's the main... The, the dominant factor in climate heating is carbon pollution. For more than a decade, these different factors that either heat or cool climate, uh, a factor that cools climate is, is cutting down forests uh, makes the surface more reflective. If you burn those forests, it does introduce the carbon into the atmosphere. So it's a complicated question, the carbon budget. But different factors that either cooler or heat climate stacked up has an overall heating effect that's driven by uh, carbon pollution, methane increase, and other uh, human-produced greenhouse gases like refrigerants. That whole uh, budget has already shown for some time that there's a net heating effect from human activity. Tell us about your book and video series called Faster Than Forecast, The Story Ice Tells About Abrupt Climate Change. I've published online at a website called sila.cool, S-I-L-A dot C-O-O-L, and there I've written about the scientific surprises that have occurred during my almost 30-year career and those led to an underlying faster uh, ice melt than we had conceived. And so the subtitle of the book is Faster Than Forecast, the story that ice tells about uh, abrupt climate change. And ice is a very sensitive reactor, 
So chapter by chapter, I go through the scientific epiphanies that underlie the, the faster ice loss. And it's, it's a journey of, of uh, what I have called a kind of rapid science where I've partnered with organizations to document what's happening using unconventional uh, means, uh, that is uh, ships and with helicopters. And I could get ahead of the scientific uh, establishment by using an unconventional resource of logistics to get places and to ask questions that didn't follow the conventional science. It, it tends to have to prove of concept before it gets funding, and it produces a rigid science that moves forward. However, if you can ask bigger questions without having to prove the science ahead of time, I could do a number of projects which proved to be uh, ahead of the scientific establishment and underscored how the scientific funding system moves uh, too slowly. It should ask bigger questions than the, the group think. And so the book also then ends on a bit on uh, what solutions can we approach, and, and those chapters are entitled Radical Solutions. I argue that it's important to work with nature because nature has already developed over millions of years technologies that are very effective to stabilize climate, and that, that involves uh, a good example is uh, planting forests. Humans have uh, deforested many areas, and planting trees is uh, an approach that has a huge list of benefits and is something that, that we should be doing on a massive scale. And it's something that people can do themselves and is, is a, an excellent example of taking that step that we all need to take. If we all take a step to reestablishing a reciprocal relationship with nature, we can begin to develop a, a more of a systems approach to interacting with nature rather than subjugating nature or commodifying nature. We work with nature and, and reap the, the benefits from nature that we've taken for granted and we've been not good enough about working with nature. How should the results of your new paper be used by policymakers at the upcoming COP27 climate conference in Egypt? I'm participating in the upcoming COP conference, and I feel like I can make a substantial contribution. And I have already delivered the statement to some European groups, government-level groups that are asking your question. How does this paper bear on the information that policymakers can use? The baseline message is prepare for more sea level rise than what um, the latest intergovernmental assessment delivers. Prepare for that. And it becomes a, a risk management approach that, as policy can become science-based, it can weigh the risk and manage the risks of climate shift so that in this context of ice melting, it's, it's about coastal planners, people that are responsible for managing coastal infrastructure. What is the plan going out, say, 30, 50-plus years about storm surges, major storms like tropical cyclones, hurricanes? I know that the, that community, they want the best numbers, and, and so our contribution is hedge your bets for more sea level rise. This new paper seems like a major step and maybe a landing point after years of work. What comes next for you, Jason Box? We can project into the future the commitment of ice loss 
from not only Greenland, but all global land ice. So I can move forward and, and take that work. We've begun that work to then provide a timeline of sea level rise commitment. And we're now also working on the question of at what level of warming does ice loss from Greenland become irreversible? And that involves the fact that ice is thinning and the surface and the snow line rises because not just because of melting, but because of the flow of ice is moving, thinning the ice by its own flow. And that is another feedback mechanism uh, where warming begets more melting and more flow response of the ice. And so I, I think we've taken a, a good first step on the elevation melt feedback and the irreversibility question. It's already obvious from the data that the more we limit carbon pollution, the more we're putting the brakes on warming and buying time as the world prepares for its major cities to become uh, more threatened by coastal inundation. From the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, we have been speaking with expert glaciologist and Greenland specialist, Dr. Jason Box. Find links to the science we discussed and Jason's helpful YouTube explainers in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Jason, thank you for a cold shot of reality here on Radio Ecoshock. It's good to be here. Thanks. I'm Alex Smith. Radio Ecoshock. Two more key Greenland papers just came out in September. The first is a huge study of the British Islands ice sheet. Massive glaciers covered most of the UK and Ireland until just about 15,000 years ago. Ice experts formed a group called the Brit Ice Chrono. They created the best picture we have of mass ice sheet decline, or maybe collapse. As always, you can find links to all the science, the books, the articles we talked about in this program in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening and caring about our world. <laughs> <laughs>